And so now if you would turn your Bibles to the Old Testament, we're going to be camping out there for the next five weeks. And if you're familiar with your Bible, great. If you're not, that's why you're here. We want to grow together in the Word of God. Uh, We're going to be looking at a lot of Scripture today. We're going to be looking at a case study uh, by a young man by the name of David who's going to start young and get old. And we are looking at him through a very specific lens this morning and each week. And so to start off, let let me tell you how this kind of whole concept started. I was at Kessler's with our intern, Caden, who's a senior in high school, and, um, and, and Greg. And we were eating the buffet, which is another reason that I, like, it was a reminder I need to quit. I need to quit eating the buffet. Um, played City League basketball this week, threw my back out, was complaining about my shoulder when I got to the game. That still hurts, too. And it was just this reality of it's, it's because of Caden coming on as an intern, and we take him to lunch, like, every day. And... Um, I'm just gaining weight. But uh, we were talking at this buffet, and I started challenging our young intern who wants to be a pastor someday. I said, what's the best video game besides Mike Tyson's Punch-Out that has ever existed? And you're like, how does this have to do with King David? Just wait. It'll get there. And uh, he, of course, didn't know because he's not as wise as myself or Greg. And I said, the best game besides Mike Tyson's Punch-Out that has ever been created, and by a show of applause or cheering or grunting, uh, if you are a certain demographic, you know I'm right. It's hands down has to be Super Mario Brothers, right? And so some of you come into here today with all of your new games and blah, 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 but that's because you don't know anything, and, and we do. And so I had six video games as a child. My parents wouldn't let me buy more. They were expensive, but I had an old Nintendo. Two of them were Super Mario Brothers, and then you got the Super Mario Brothers and what game was attached to it? Duck Hunt, and so you got two right out of the gate. Christmas, unbelievable, right? And so uh, I had Super Mario Brothers, and it took me like six months to save for the next game. My games were Super Mario Brothers, Super Mario Brothers 2, Super Mario Brothers 3, and I just kind of kept with that train. Um, Excite Bike, RC Pro-Am, Double Dribble, I was done. That was it. And then I grew up, and I didn't play video games into my 20s, 30s, and 40s, okay? No offense for those that have. Um, but I grew out of that, because you're supposed to. And... And there was this idea attached to the game that I never thought of until I was old and Caden needed mentorship. And I thought to myself, because I knew I wanted to preach going into Christmas on what it looks like to serve Jesus in each critical stage of development, basically broken down in just three or four stages of development. What does it look like to serve God, to serve Jesus more specifically as Christians uh, when you're young? What does it look like to serve Jesus in the middle part of your life, and what does it look like to serve Jesus in the legacy mode? And the deep thought that I had for our young intern was this, if you want to serve God over here at the end, or if you want to serve God in your 30s and 40s, there's something that has to happen while you're young. If you don't do it right, you're going to mess everything else up, or you're going to have to go back and unpack things at a level that's going to take time, emotional, and spiritual energy that really you don't have to go this route. And what I was telling him is I said this. I said this to him. I said, you cannot warp. You guys know what that is? Right? I said, Caden, youngster, high school kid, you cannot warp past the stage you're in to get where you want to go. Because what happens, and I thought about that, I thought, well, this is brilliant. I texted him this morning. I said, Caden, if this analogy tanks, your internship's over. 
But I thought that this was brilliant in a sense where it's so true of my own life are now people that I know in my 40s. People that are also trying to live vicariously through their past and their city league basketball and their back injuries and their pear-shaped, you know, balding bodies. It's like you see people that are of a certain age physically, but then they're a whole nother age spiritually if they're even a follower of Christ. And now I know it's not you, but have you ever met anyone like that? Where it's like they're 40, 50 years old, but spiritually they're still drinking milk. And, and I thought to myself, back to the Mario Brothers days, I thought, man, you know, I did something. I, my friend told me, remember those magazines you would get from Mario Brothers? Or not just Mario Brothers, Nintendo, and they would teach you the tricks of the trade and the codes. You guys track with that? Like maybe Contra, up, up, down, down, left, right, left, right, BA, select, start. I mean, I don't know, just something like that. That you'll never remember, right, when you're older. But there were these cheats, there were these tricks, and so one of the tricks was if you couldn't pass Mario Brothers, you could warp to the eighth world. If you're a certain generation, you go, what, this is a complete waste of my time. But if you're like 40 years old, you're going, amen, right? You could warp, but then what happened when you got to eight if you never even passed three? You were terrible. You didn't know what to do at eight. Eight was too hard. Eight was too big boy. It was too grown up. And so you had to walk through the process of actually going through each stage. And if you warped through the process, then you wouldn't get where you were supposed to be. You, you could be there physically, but you didn't have the skill set to get where you needed to go. And I thought, isn't that true of life? And Caden's looking at me, like, and Kessler's like, sure, you're the boss, right? But uh, I thought, man, let's walk through level one, one in the faith and look at a character who starts at one and ends at eight. And the thing about that is there's not very many. There, you don't get this type of narrative from very many people in scripture. David is such a central figure, not only to the coming of Christ, but he's a central figure to the Old Testament and the historic lineage of the Israelites and the Jewish people that you get this longitudinal study of his life where he starts young and he has this faith and then he has this time where he's running. He has this time in the wilderness. He has this time where he's finally king and then he has this time as a 52-year-old where he falls again into lust. And then you see him at the end of his life and you get to examine him through all of these things, not warping through, but keeping the faith. So here we go. 11th century BC, write some stuff down. We're gonna cover a lot of ground. The story of David takes place 1100 years BC. David is known as a king, but he starts as a boy. And so today he's 15 years old. And we look at his life, and it's messy, but he passionately pursues the Lord. And what you need to understand about today is he's living in a time that's not kind of violent. David's living in a time that is hyper-violent. It's crazy violent. And we have some understanding of that. Like I, I did some research with Siri right before I got up here. I mean, World War II, you guys know how many people died in World War II? We hear about the Holocaust, but 70 million people died in World War II. So we know what violence looks like. But modern warfare is different than when they, the way that David would have experienced it. Ancient warfare is something that if you watch Braveheart or Gladiator, we, glad, we glamorize it and we fictionalize it, we sanitize it, we romanticize it. But if you were actually in it, you probably wouldn't have had the stomach for it. See, in ancient warfare, you were up close and personal. Modern warfare, you kill from a distance. Ancient warfare, you kill from arm's distance and you look in the eye of your enemy. You smell their breath. You know what they had for breakfast. 
That's the world that young David was living in as we walk into this story of David and Goliath. You look in their eyes, you see their fear, you see their anger, you possibly see them glazed over because they drank so much out of fear of the battle that they have liquid courage. Then I heard one person say, the worst thing you could say when you look into the eyes of your enemies is a calm heart. Someone who's cool as a cucumber because you know that they're trained in their skill set, they're a trained assassin. The odds of making it out of a battle in the Old Testament were very small. And after the battle, and only after the battle, once the adrenaline had subsided, could you then do an inventory of where you were actually at physically, how bad you were hurt. You could look at the blood on your body and then determine once you were calm if it was your blood or the blood of a victim who lost their life in battle with you. And if it were your blood and you could stop the bleeding, the chances are you would probably die from some other type of secondary infection. I didn't know this until actually I've kind of looked at David over the course of the years at New Life. I think he's a central figure for how we operate. But it is noted in history, specifically ancient history, that people often fought naked because if clothing got in your wound, it could cause secondary affections and death. If your soldier beside you lost courage and ran the other way, you would almost certainly die. This is David's world. And then, like many other people around you, if you did die, there was a cleanup crew, not like in modern warfare. The cleanup crew consisted of animals and birds that would hang out and take care of your remains. This is very graphic. And so when you start thinking of stories like David and Goliath, understand the context of the battle. Of course people were scared. Of course people had a different mindset over 3,000 years ago. 1 Samuel chapter 17, I'm going to go through some stuff, follow along on the screen, on your own Bible, on your phone, whatever you need to do, but here we go. Now the Philistines gathered their forces for war and assembled at Socha in Judah, and they pitched camp at Ephesus and Dummin between Socha and Azekah. If I said that wrong, whatever. Saul and the Israelites assembled and camped in the valley of Elah and drew up their battle line to meet the Philistines, and the Philistines occupied the hill and the Israelites another, and with the valley between them, a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. His height was six cubits and a span. So Goliath was about 9.5 feet tall. He held a spear that would have weighed about 15 pounds. And so you think, well, how can you throw a spear that weighs 15 pounds? And the answer is, you don't. But what you do is you take that spear at 9.5 feet tall, and you reach over the front line, this is what he would have done, he would have been second rank, he would have had people in front of him as a wall, and he would have just reached over the top at nine and a half feet tall and stabbed people with this 15 pound spear. He didn't need to throw it, it was like a long sword. Verse seven, his spear shaft was like a weaver's rod and its iron point weighed 600 shekels. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Could you imagine being the shield bearer? How bad would that stink, right? Everyone's targeting this guy, and you're just the shield that's disposable. His shield bearer went ahead of him. Goliath stood and shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Am I not a Philistine? Are you not the servants of Saul? Choose a man and have him come down to me. If he is able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects. But if I overcome him and kill you, you will become our subjects and you're gonna serve us. And then the Philistines said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight 
each other. They're looking for a champion. Everyone is terrified. Everyone has this narrative, this backstory of what ancient warfare felt, looked like, felt like. And look at me when I tell you this. They knew what it smelt like. This was incredibly gory. Israel needed a champion, so they looked to a king. There's a backstory behind that. And when they go to look for a king, they do what you probably would have done as well. They look for someone who's tall, dark, and handsome, who looks the part. What is his name? His name is Saul. And so then when you get into situations like a nine and a half foot giant, you have somebody that can maybe potentially compete with someone like that. He's your king. He looks the part. It's like basketball. You can't teach height, right? And so that's the story. That's the back story. Saul versus Goliath, they're probably thinking, well, he's going to lose, but he's probably our best chance. I mean, this is someone who looks the part, who can fight our battles with us. And as they gawk through this storyline, there's someone missing. And his name is, once things start mounting, the pressure is upon them, his name is King Saul. King Saul is not the person that steps up in this storyline. In fact, the fact that they even wanted a king wasn't even God's will. 400 years prior, a little history lesson, God established Israel as a theocracy, a nation of laws administered by judges. This was cutting edge for this time period. Everyone had a king. And God said, I'm the king. I'm the one to be worshipped. And he knew there would be downsides to even having a king. But Samuel grows old, and the book is named after him. The prophet grows old, appoints his sons as judges, but it turns out, and we'll call them pastor's kids. I know that it's not exactly the same, but you can kind of get the context. And not my own kids, because my own kids are so great and never do anything wrong. But the pastor's kids were dishonest and accepted bribes. They, they weren't playing the part. The elders come together, say, you're old, your kids are bad. We want a king like everyone else. Samuel's told by God, listen to the people. It's not that they're rejecting you. It's that re they're rejecting me. Warn them, let them know the downsides. Ultimately, they get a king, and his name is King Saul, and then David is going to come through the ranks of King Saul. But as we pick up this story, David's 15 years old. He ends up becoming Israel's greatest king. He had all these flaws that we're going to learn about, but he had this strength. He had faith, and he had a heart for God. So his story can look like our story, and he leads with clarity and conviction, despite his size, anyone have size deprivation as far as height in church this morning? Like you're like, you're always that person that's classically been looked over. I talk about basketball and you can't teach height and your coach told you that, it's because you were small, right? I mean, this is a great lesson for all of us. He led with clarity. He didn't lean on his talent primarily. He led from a place of dependence on God. And here it is, verse 11. On hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and terrified. Goliath is taunting Saul. His men are terrified. David's response, instead of being terrified, and this is a psychologically interesting construct for me, instead of being terrified, like I think one of the reasons that David wasn't terrified is he was just too young, dumb, and broke to get it. There, there's something about innocence that can actually manifest as bravery. There's something about ignorance that can manifest as bravery. 
Have you ever heard the saying, ignorance is bliss? I think part of David is he, he had this faith, but part of it was he was 15 years old. He had this pure faith. He's 15 years old, and instead of being terrified like Saul, he's offended. And here's what's interesting psychologically about that to me. I, I, I actually read a study one time where if you want to overcome your fears, one of the things that you can do is you can become angry. I actually told a team of girls that we coached one year about this idea. And, and the idea stems from um, studies that were done on professional athletes, and they get this big stage like it's the NBA Finals, and everyone's obviously scared. You have to be scared. But one of the things that great athletes do is they, they pick a fight on some level with somebody where, like Michael Jordan was known for doing this, he would always have a beef with someone. He would just make it up. And the idea is this. This is what psychologists know, that you cannot be, and this is interesting, this is like extra for you. This isn't even about the sermon. You cannot be angry and scared at the same time because they're competing emotions. Did you know that? Think about it in your own life. If you're angry, you're not scared. And so David is offended now, I'm not saying he's manipulating himself to be offended. I'm just saying he's offended and he's not scared like everyone else around him. In verse 26, he has this response. David asked the men standing near him, what will be done for the man who kills the Philistine and removes this disgrace from Israel? Offense. Who is, uncircum who is this uncircumcised Philistine that we should defy the armies of the living God? Right, David looks at a nine and a half foot man with a, 15-pound spear, and he says he's not a giant that can't be defeated. He's a disgrace that must be removed. It's a different perspective, isn't it? He's just a disgrace. He's defying the armies of the living God. He's outside of the covenant of God's people. Word gets back to Saul. There's somebody out there. Can you imagine if you're Saul? Like you're after day after day, who is this guy? Who is this guy? Who is this guy? Hey, there's somebody out there. He sees David. Anyone 15 in church that you're bold enough to be David and even raise your hand? I got a 15-year-old. His whole plan is to, to drink a bunch of weight gainer so that he's not the size of a 15-year-old forever. At 15, 15's young. 15's short. 15 is not shaving yet. 15 is runt. Doesn't have a shield. He's a shepherd. Saul dismisses him. He says, I might just be a shepherd, but this shepherd took out a lion to save a sheep and a bear for the same reason. David says this in verse 36. He says, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear. This uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of the Philistine. David's faith is unlike anything we've seen. When you know this about prehistoric ancient warfare, who would have that type of clarity and bravery? He puts his hope in the Lord. And I'm going to read you this battle as a means of encouraging your own faith. And so what we're doing in this sermon series, I'm going to give you a few applicable concepts after, but each week we're preaching to a different life stage. And I'm preaching to a stage this morning that is the vast minority of people sitting here, although many of you are parenting this stage. And so this one's for you. If you are in high school, this is my youth pastor sermon. I'll go to Aberdeen Christian in a few weeks. Maybe I'll preach the same thing. Don't tell anyone. Here it is. Meanwhile, the Philistine with his shield bearer in front of him kept coming closer to David. Verse 41. He looked David over and saw that he was little more than a boy. You're going to see some ancient trash talk, so just wait for it. Glowing with health and handsome. And he despised him. Probably because Goliath was big but ugly. 
He said to David, am I a dog that you come at me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here, he said, and I'll give you your flesh to the birds and the wild animals. And David said to the Philistine, you come against me with a sword. David is 15, but he brings it right back at him. You come against me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of armies of Israel, whom you have defiled. This day the Lord will deliver you into my hands, and I'll strike you down, and I'll cut off your head. This very day I will give the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds and the wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And all those gathered here will know that it is not by sword or spear that the Lord saves, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give all of you into our hands. This guy is theologically on point. And as the Philistine moved closer to attack him, David ran quickly toward the battle line to meet him, reaching to his bag, taking out a stone. He slung it, struck a Philistine in the forehead. The stone sand into his for- sank into his forehead, and he fell down on his face on the ground. Almost done. Are you ready? It gets more violent. Here we go. This is the closer. So David triumphed over the Philistine with a sling and a stone. Without a sword in his hand, he struck down the Philistine, and he killed him. And David ran over and stood over him. He took hold of the Philistine's sword, drew it from his sheath, and after he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. Why do people say the Old Testament's violent? I, I don't get it. <laughs> like, I don't like that story. Well, it, it's the Bible, so maybe we need to adjust how we see things. But there are points to be made here. If you are a young man or a young woman, I'm going to give you some application. It's just for you. If you're a parent, you should probably write these things down as well. If you don't hate people in high school, you should pay attention as well. And for those of you who hate people in high school, you can leave now, all right? Ready? Number one, this is just like an old man talking to you, pouring out old man wisdom. Number one, if you wait, parents, I'm going to tell you things you want to tell your kids, but they won't listen to you. Ready? If you wait till you're not afraid, you're never going to step foot on the battlefield. And so if you're thinking to yourself, man, what am I going to do? I'm in, I'm in high school. Um, I'm, maybe I'm in college. I'm single. I don't look anything like David. I, I would just let you know, if you are young and you are ill-equipped and you are trying to find your bearings in your faith and that there is this reality at this stage where you're asking larger-than-life questions, who am I? What am I supposed to do with my life? And it's frustrating and, because you want things emotionally that you don't have yet. Like if you're, a, I'm just going to generalize, you're, if you're a high school girl sitting in church today, you probably have already, like many other girls your age, mapped out your future in your mind, but you're in no way ready to accomplish, like you're already in your mind emotionally in some ways ready to nest and build towards the future, but you have things in your heart that haven't manifested yet, and so you have these fears, and you have these giants in your life. If you're a 15-year-old boy, you're probably not thinking about that yet, but maybe you play video games, I don't know. But if you wait till you're not afraid, you will never step foot on the battlefield. And so here's the goal. You have to redirect how you see things. The goal is not to eliminate fear. In fact, I'll go a step further. If you don't have some fear at 15, you know what you are? Look at me. You're delusional. You're delusional. If you're 15 years old, I'm not scared of anything. That's because you were too close to mommy and she told you you were great, right? You should be scared. Life's scary. It's not to eliminate fear. The goal is to care more about what God has called you to do than the fear that is stopping you from doing it. 
If you wait till you're not afraid, you're not going to do anything for the Lord. David is the example. So what is God calling you to do? 15, 16, 17, 18, 19, 20, 20, 21, 22 years old? What a weak excuse to step back and to absorb and to be dictated to in your young age, like you're always responding, high schoolers, you're always responding to doing things that you have to do by people older than you that are mandating you're here even this morning. So instead of initiating the process, instead of being a David, either as a young man or young woman in the culture around you, you're just constantly responding to and adapting to the world around you instead of leading through it because you can be young, but you can do things. There's a reason we have Bible studies in schools at Central, at ACS, in Ipswich, why we want to take that down Highway 12 and see these studies develop in these schools, public and private, because you can do things. And you don't have to wait. Here's something that psychologists know. This seems a bit off track, but I promise it's part of the point. The number one way, and I say this term cautiously because I think it's been hijacked, the number one way to increase self-esteem is to complete tasks. Did you know that? You're like, man, I just feel so inadequate. Well, what if you just did something? The number one way to increase self-esteem is to complete tasks. And so looking at this spiritually, here's the translations. The number one thing to increase your capacity and your confidence in your own faith is to step out and do something. To not just respond to mom or dad and go to youth group because you have to and church because you have to. To do things for the Lord, to take a stand, to dig spiritual roots, to serve, to lead, to invest, to pursue mentorship from and then mentorship to people that are younger than you. What are you doing for the Lord? What are you doing for the Lord? Are you responding or are you leading? Because if you wait till you're not afraid, you're going to do nothing. Maturity doesn't just happen. It's developmental. Here's a key insight for parents as well. Maturity does not just happen in the Lord or in, in the world. It's developmental, like you can walk through these hoops, but it's also behavioral. How many of you have known 50-year-olds that act like 15-year-olds? No one? You're not on social media? Right? Maturity doesn't just happen. Number two, the longer you wait, Here's something I wish someone would have told me when I was 15. The longer you wait to kill a giant, the bigger the giant becomes. This is just true. Sin that's not addressed, it's like a chia pet in your life that just keeps getting watered. It just keeps growing and growing and growing. The longer you wait to kill a giant, the bigger the giant becomes. And so when you are young, when you are David-esque in week one of this series, you're in this amazing position. This is why in counseling I always preferred to work with young men instead of older men because of this one reality. When you are young, you're in a great position to make generational changes because your personality is still forming and adapting. How many of you guys know if you're like my age, 20 years older than me, change is what? Wake up. It's a full house. Wake up. Change is hard. That's not just a cliche. That's a reality. That's personality development. And so the longer you wait to kill a giant, the longer you wait to deal with sin in your life, the longer you wait to make generational changes because maybe you're the first person in your family to serve Christ. We have teenagers in this church 
who have found this church on their own. I think that's unprecedented. We have teenagers coming and then bringing their families along. This has happened not just one time, not just twice. This has happened a handful of times in the last few years. Teenagers who maybe their family never comes or they start coming and they get saved and they get baptized and then their family's going, what's going on? Something's different here. But the longer you wait to kill a giant in your life, the harder it becomes to take that giant out. And so you lay your life down at the feet of Jesus and you place those things, those giants in your life with the worship of Jesus. Those things that have been lurking in your life can be slain at 15, 16, 17, 18 a lot easier than when you're 40, 50, 60. And so what are those things you need to lay down at the foot of the cross now so that they don't disrupt that potentially warped stage when you're 30 and 40 years old and all of a sudden your world's blowing up on you. I promise you, look at me, young people, look at me, that happens all the time. So many times we think we have killed sin that's just lying dormant in our lives. Here's another one, you can't just wound it. You cannot just wound a giant, you have to kill it. You can't just pacify it because those things, like I just said, that you think are dead could just be lying dormant and between you and Jesus, you know the difference. But David makes a distinct decision. He takes out the stone, he goes for the head. He doesn't go take the stone and throw it at the giant's leg. It's not gonna do the job. He's not gonna just stub his toe and then walk off the battlefield. You have to take out that giant in your life that's at the face of sin in your life. And so he takes the stone, he strikes him in the forehead, and then he already knows the Bible says he's dead, but then he takes it a step further for a multitude of reasons, right? He wants to show his head, but he cuts the head off because there's nothing that can live to my limited knowledge based on anatomy with its head cut off. So he cuts the giant's head off. So here's the closer. Number four. Obedience, 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 obedience. You guys ever heard the saying, age before beauty? Obedience with David, obedience for me, obedience for you, comes before either age or beauty. In a world full of uncontrollable variables, obedience is that variable that can be controlled Obedience is that variable that people have from all backgrounds, all socioeconomic statuses, all ages, all giftings or lack thereof. God uses this one thing to direct change and it's this idea of obedience in our lives. David is obedient. Saul looks the part. David at 15 is living the part. And so the question then becomes this. As the praise team starts thinking about coming back up, I'll probably talk a couple more minutes and go off on one more tangent, but I'm almost done. The question then becomes this, and we need to all focus in on this. This isn't a 15-year-old concept or a 20-year-old concept or a 30-year-old concept. This is for all of us. All have fallen short of this target goal. The question then becomes, like David in this story, are you obeying God? Are you obeying God? Worship team, stay there. I'm not ready yet. I heard the door crack. Are you obeying God? It's like the lost idea in the modern church. 
when you, when you lay your chips before the table and you're doing an inventory of spiritual maturity, are you selfish? You want to know what maturity looks like? It's selflessness. Are you selfish or selfless? The marker for your life, are you obeying the word of God? Not just the parts that you like. Not just the concepts that, you know, I'm fearfully and wonderfully made and I just love that God is so loving. Yes, he's loving. Yes, he loves you. Yes, he has a plan. Yes, he sent his son. But there will always be with spiritual maturity and even salvation this idea that obedience is directly connected to your faith. You cannot separate these two things no matter who tells you you can. And David has something. The, the sad part is, we're going to get into this the weeks to come, he has something that's fluid. Obedience is not a set in stone reality in your life, is it? He's obedient, ironically, at 15, when most people are acting pretty goofy. He's obedient at 15, but then as the story progresses, he's going to be scared, he's going to run, he's going to live in the wilderness, he is going to have a man murdered because he gets his wife pregnant. All of this stuff, he has all of these familiar issues with his kids are dysfunctional, and it's just a hot mess, but at 15, he is obeying God, even though obedience is not fluid, at this point he's obeying, and so here's the principle, this is the reality gut check for all of us. You might be looking at your kid right now, or when your kid was this age, you go, man, I wish they would listen to this. Uh, obedience is not fluid, it's your problem too, right? It's my problem too, I have not arrived at this, and when I think I've arrived at this, that's probably when I have fallen in my faith. But obedience requires things, it requires delayed gratification, it requires sacrifice, but it produces future leaders that will take the gospel to the next generation, doesn't it? Obedience is that secret thing. It really isn't that secret, but it's that special ingredient that allows you to go through each stage, level one, level two, level three, level four, two, one, two, one, two, two, right, without warping. That is the thing. And so where are we at with this? You will, and here's a hard word, I told this to a group of college, Bible college kids a few weeks ago. I'll give you a hard word, then I'll give you the good news, and then truly the worship team will come back. If you are young in this room, do we have a lot of, even college students that are waking up at 9.30, praise God, bringing their girlfriends, bringing their boyfriends to church. Hopefully your motive is pure, but whatever, that's between you and Jesus. You're hearing these types of things, maybe they're motivating you, and you're going, yeah, there's something about this. He's kind of different, but I, I, you know, I, I believe this. This is very believable. This is passionate. And I think they're talking about something that's real. And you know, you say to yourself, I, I want to do these things. And just being around the block now at my age, I will tell you, there are some of you sitting here in this space that want to do things for the Lord that you won't do spiritually because you are into warping instead of obeying. You're into warping instead of obeying. And the harshest reality is this. If you don't believe me, just look around. Just look around. It's all around us. People going, this is, you know, they want Jesus until Jesus becomes this person that tells them no. You'll start doing things that you didn't plan on doing and then compromising in ways that you didn't plan on compromising. 
and then the giants of life come, and instead of killing them, you're giving them a bear hug, and you're loving on them, and you're trusting that those things are going to be your now idols and affections in your life, and it is going to, as you warp instead of obey, it is going to destroy you at the next stage. You're going to be in my office crying crocodile tears going, how did this happen? It's because you warped instead of obeyed. Instead of looking like David, you looked like Saul. I was watching this documentary. I don't want to get into names, but man, there's some whacked out stuff on the media right now about people that we've looked up to. There's this guy in his 50s. Worship team can come back up now for real. They're literally like this, you guys. They're like... The worship team can come back up, Greg. There's a guy in his 50s who is ahead of a multi-billion dollar Christian organization that all of us would recognize, but we'll keep names out of it. And there's this thing on Hulu that it's politically charged, and there's some angles there for sure, but they dissect his character and his behavior in the last 10 years and it's absolutely shocking. I'm, I'm looking at this thing. I'm watching it last night with just knots in my stomach. It's not just this guy. It's his father who had a legacy in the faith. And they're all surrounding the political movements of the last 30 or 40 years. And then come to find out he's got these demons in his closet. He's got these skeletons in his closet with him and his wife and a young pool boy. It's just disgusting. And there's no comment from him, so we don't know all the details, but they have the text messages and things like that. So you know that generally the story is true, and the young man who's the pool boy is telling the story, and I'm just going, man, how does that even happen? And it just brought me right back to the sermon. He warped through the stages. He attached himself to daddy's faith. And he was privy to spiritual leadership that he didn't necessarily earn, but that was thrown upon him. He was actually known as the black sheep of his family. And instead of killing the giant and crucifying the giant, what he did was he gave the giant a big bear hug, and he said this to himself in his own arrogance. He said, the rules don't apply to me. He had this Christian organization that had rules about drinking and premarital sex and all these things, but in his own life, he's doing all of it because he warped through the stages. And if we want to walk through the stages, I'll close now, we have to obey Jesus. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the hope that we have in you. As we close out this time and we look to this ancient leader who was such a pivotal figure, not just in that time period, but in your own lineage, Jesus, this this king that ultimately is putting on display a future king that would be born into this world, you, the king of kings. Help us to look at his life with humility and to learn from it and to have all of his spiritual strengths and deficits put on display for us to grow in our love and affection for you, King Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Everybody said, amen. Thanks so much for joining us today. We pray this message connected with you, and we hope it gave you another way to connect with Jesus and your New Life family. For more ways to get plugged in here at New Life, you can visit our website at www.newlifeaberdeen.org. Thanks again for listening, and have a great week.